You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Ministry Grow Show, a podcast dedicated to helping churches and ministries grow and make more effective impacts for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing digital world. Whether you're building and growing a gospel-centered ministry or leading a church, if you want insight into the strategies, struggles, challenges, and successes of other ministry leaders, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to the Ministry Growth Show. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking with John King. He is the global coach for Final Command Ministries. John, thanks for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about Final Command Ministries? Um, Maybe what your role is within the organization and and share some things that you're uh, currently most excited about with what God is doing through Final Command. Final Command is a nonprofit that was started in 2002 by Jerry Trousdale, who is the author of the book Miraculous Movements, tells some of the remarkable stories of uh, multiplication, especially in Africa, and uh, also Claude King, who co-authored Experiencing God with Henry Blackaby about 30 years ago. These two American men live in Murfreesboro, the same city where I live, and we're getting together to pray. And out of that prayer time, a burden for the largest unreached people groups in Africa began to be born, and they formed the nonprofit. Eventually, uh, Jerry met an individual named David Watson, who spoke at a Perspectives on the World Christian Movement course. Lesson 13 is titled The Spontaneous Multiplication of Churches. And David was telling stories of remarkable things that God was doing in northern India. And Jerry began to question what would it be like to see those same kinds of multiplication movements happen in West Africa. And Final Command was born as a organization to try to catalyze movements in Africa, especially. I started serving on the board of directors in 2007 or 2008. I can't remember the exact date. And then in May of 2011, came on staff and serve under the title of Global Coach with Final Command. Um, The things that are incredibly exciting are breakthroughs among some of those unreached people groups in Africa. Within the last couple of years, one of the largest most resistant people groups that especially reside in and around the areas uh, of the Sahara Desert have experienced the the start of a remarkable breakthrough. And seeing the way God's doing things through ordinary people is the, the part of that that's incredible and fascinating. And actually here in North North America, we're beginning to see some things that are very encouraging, even in the midst of the coronavirus Mm -hmm. challenges 
many people are beginning to experiment with the use of Zoom and other online platforms uh, to start discovery groups here in North America. And that's proving quite uh, encouraging as well. Now, is that a pursuit you guys have taken on during all of this COVID stuff for Final Command? Or are you still focusing on Africa during all of this? We've been trying for a few years now to see if we could be catalytic here in North America. Part of that as our efforts to explain the work that's happening in Africa to donors, intercessors, people who know us personally. And we, we began to realize that it's possible that there would be something of what I lovingly call a, a backwash from what's happening internationally to what might be considered possible for here in in the U.S. and Canada, uh, other nations in the, the global north kind of area. And so we've, we've been doing some things to try to be catalytic here. The uh, coronavirus challenges have given us an, an extra opportunity to speak because a lot of people were sort of behind the curve on trying to figure out how do you keep ministry going and definitely open to the possibilities if there were, if there were ways to start something new. When most people were saying we're going to have to wait until this sort of passes to be able to do anything like that. And so you guys have seen some progress in that? Yes, we're seeing a number of new groups that are started. They're so early, we don't know the long-term you know, fruitfulness of them. But the one thing that we're very confident in is that the young adults, who are primarily the ones that have taken up this charge, are getting a lot of experience. And even if things pass fairly quickly and return to normal, they will be much more confident in their abilities to uh, facilitate groups, to invite people to new groups. And they're finding an openness that many of them have, have found exciting, encouraging. Uh, a lot of church people in traditional churches have made the basic assumption that many of our friends and neighbors aren't interested in sitting down and reading scripture with us. And because of the, the loneliness, because of the fears, the anxieties, people have been more open to exploring what the Bible says about hope, what the Bible says about peace. And we're sort of using those uh, topical introductions to scripture as first waves of testing whether or not the people are spiritually open or if they're just lonely and wanting somebody to talk with and we'll put up with the Bible study time, the Bible discussion time for the sake of interaction. And you, you don't know until you try it. Right. Yeah. Now, for some context for our listeners, what does your ministry background look like? I was a pastor of three different congregations in the United States, two in Tennessee and one in Maryland, close to Washington, D.C. 
for a total of uh, 31 years. Um, have a four-year Bible college degree and two master's degrees in in biblical studies and theology, and was very traditional in a lot of my ministry approaches. So you didn't use any generational discipleship-making models when you were leading your congregations, right? No, this this was all brand new to me. Uh, I've trained a number of people, done some exposure trainings, first time experience with it. And a number of people have come up and said, where was this 20 years ago? And I've had to say, I've, I've thought the same thing myself. I, I wish I wish I had known these things when I started. I, I'm sure a lot of my ministry could have been more fruitful than it has. Uh, one of the, the key topics that we'll likely talk about are persons of peace. And when I when I read about that out of Luke 10 and explored what that passage says about this topic, I thought of some key people who had come to faith through my, my fairly traditional ministry years ago. That if I'd only understood that one principle, I'm confident there would have been greater fruit because one one man in particular came to faith one-on-one studies with myself and then his sister and, and then a brother-in-law and, and then another family member. And, and this happened over a, a number of years, but every time he would find another one who was interested in talking, he would introduce them to me and then I would meet with them one-on-one. If I had reached him within the context of equipping him to reach his family, then those of us who were reaching people would have multiplied. And that's really where the speed of disciple-making movements come from. It, It doesn't come from speeding up the process. It comes from increasing the number of kingdom laborers, the harvesters, in in the process. This topic of discipleship-making models has come up in recent episodes. Um, it's something that I'm particularly interested in. And so how does final command approach discipleship-making? Can you walk us through the model or process that you guys are using? We began almost all of our efforts with people who are already believers, many of them in fairly traditional churches, but who have frustration, disappointment with the lack of fruit. Uh, a lot of pastors and Sunday school teachers, for example, have, have taught series of classes or sermons through the book of Acts. And the remarkable growth that we read about there, we, we've not experienced it in our ministries, in our lives. And it, it can be frustrating. It can be disappointing. It, it can be a place of, you know, praying, crying out to God. What What's different? What, what am I missing? And when people begin to hear some of the stories of breakthrough or read it in books like Miraculous Movements that I mentioned earlier, they are looking for somebody to verify. Are, are these stories true? Is it really happening? 
And as people began to hear more and more stories out of Africa, some began to say, why can't that happen here? Or what will it take for that to happen here? And in answering those questions, we started looking at some of the unique characteristics of movements, multiplying or multi-generational movements, compared to a lot of our traditional approaches. And at Final Command, we settled on five words or phrases that we use to help people begin to get a picture. There's a system, not a complicated system, but a significant system that has to be built to, to sort of hold the paradigm shifts, the changes in our thinking and our behavior to get us to move toward multiplication. Uh, it begins with praying and fasting because ultimately our changes, even the changes in our thinking, aren't going to produce multiplication. God's going to have to be the one who brings multiplication to pass. And so praying and fasting is about us trying to align our heart to his heart. What, what people group would God have us reach out to? What place would he have us uh, to intentionally begin to plant the seed of the gospel? Who has he already been preparing this person of peace kind of concept? Uh, an individual who will be a bridge into their family unit, into their neighborhood, into their relational circles. If we're going to find people like that and them not just be a, a needle in a haystack that we're frantically searching for, we're going to have to hear from God. Who are those people? Where would you have me go? And two passages that really shape that whole concept are Matthew 10, when Jesus sends the 12 out two by two, and then Luke 10, when he sends 72 out two by two. A fascinating thing happens if you sit down with just a blank piece of paper and you start noting the directions that Jesus gives first the 12. What does he tell them to do? verse by verse. And then in Luke 10 with the 72, what does he tell those people that he's sending out to do? And you look at his directions and some of them surprisingly are, are almost contradictory to what we've traditionally taught people in evangelism types of training. Uh, Jesus has real intentionality, has real focus when he sends these people out. And they come back and, and they're celebrating, they're excited. Some really incredible results are coming, especially there in Luke 10. And we, we began to see that Jesus' strategy for evangelizing, Jesus' strategy for reaching into pockets of lostness has some real purpose for us to consider what would it look like here? What would it look like in Africa? What would it look like in the places that we want to see breakthroughs come? And praying and fasting 
Jesus sends the 72 out and the very first directive he gives them is pray that the Lord of harvest will send forth harvesters. Well, the remarkable thing is when you're reading Luke chapter 10, verse 1, Luke tells us there were 72 others. We didn't know anything about these people. And as a matter of fact, we never know for sure the name of any of those 72. They're differentiated from the 12 who were sent out in Luke chapter 9 as well as Matthew 10. So these 72 others, these ordinary they're not the hand-picked, hand-chosen 12. There's 72 others go out two by two. And the first thing they're told to do is pray. Prayer is about seeking God's heart, aligning our heart with his heart. And if we're going on mission with him, we have a, a greater sense of confidence that we're going to be successful. We're going to be fruitful not because we've done something incredible, but because we're going on mission with God instead of trying to get God to rubber stamp our purpose, what, what we think ought to happen. How can we align ourselves with him? And in our going, the second thing that we do, in addition to praying and fasting, is we, we serve with purpose, the, the intentional purpose of creating a natural opening for overt spiritual conversations. We know that it's going to take, and the third element in those five is finding persons of peace. The way our African partners, the way people in other parts of the world find persons of peace, it comes primarily through overt spiritual conversations. Uh, conversations that aren't so much focused on religious differences between world religions or philosophical thoughts, but that, that focus on spiritual topics. And persons of peace are going to be very open. They're going to be attracted to those spiritual conversations. And that openness is what clues us in to who they are. And at that point, we want to begin to build a, a meaningful relationship with them because our goal is to start discovery groups, not just with them one-on-one, -on -one, but with their family, their friendship group, with their sphere of influence. And we know they're going to have to grow to know us well enough to recognize that we have spiritual insight that they want and that they want their family, their friends to have also. Out of those discovery groups, people begin to hear God's word for themselves and discover what his heart is really like and discover what he's calling them to do personally collectively and they become as they become willing hearers who listen and obey they'll learn to trust him they'll they'll learn to walk out what he's calling them to do and in that process they'll be on their way toward faith and we begin to disciple them to become disciple makers 
while they're coming to faith. And so the fifth element is embracing multiplication. We have ways of thinking, ways of doing things that often get in the way of us embracing multiplication, of us doing things in a new way that will replicate more quickly. So those five again are pray and fast, serve with purpose, find persons of peace, start discovery groups, embrace multiplication. And we usually present that in, in a circle because it's something that once it gets going, it just keeps multiplying around and around and around and produces forward movement. So this generational disciple-making model, um, how do you guys retain your disciple-making model and refrain from moving towards a conversion model, especially maybe by the third and fourth generation? Do you guys find it difficult to retain that generational disciple-making model over, over a um, progression towards conversion model? Once it begins, it's really easier to keep it going than it is to get it started. What, what we've discovered and what I've observed here in the U.S. through the years is people, by and large, try to replicate the model that God used to bring them to faith. So for a lot of people in traditional churches, the way we came to faith was our parents raised us up to go to Sunday school week after week, year after year. And over years of this slow drip of God's word over a period of time, watching our families, we're moved through a proclamation a type of setting. Mm-hmm. For other folks who maybe as a young adult, their first exposure to God's word comes in a, in a campus ministry outreach. The best place to find people to start new campus ministries are the people who've come to faith through a campus ministry. You disciple them to become a campus minister. Uh, God used that process in helping them come to faith, and so they want to replicate it. It's what they know best. For others who are reached through a one-on-one conversionary, confrontational kind of evangelistic those are not not everyone, but they're the ones who have the, the best likelihood of being able to recreate that because it was what God used in their life. He interrupted their day. He confronted them with their brokenness and he was able to reach them through that. That's what they know because that's what they've experienced. With folks who come to faith through a discovery process, because that's what they know, they're more likely to attempt to recreate it, to replicate it. And so getting it started is often the the slower process because people who are being catalytic, who who are attempting to be uh, multipliers, we're prone to fall back into our old ways. One of the challenges with 
discovery Bible studies as the, the way that people are coming to faith is it's actually slower than a lot of our traditional evangelistic strategies. You know, five or six sessions would be considered long for a lot of traditional evangelistic sessions. We're afraid if we wait very long, people are going to lose interest. We want to seal the deal. We want to close the sale, that kind of language, that marketing kind of language that sometimes has been used. And it's born out of our fear that something else is going to be glittery and it's going to catch their attention. And and there, there is always that risk, that possibility. But what we're trying to do with discovery in a, in a disciple making kind of context is help people experience God through scripture, through the Holy Spirit at work in the word, through their life experiences, and that they'll fall in love with him. They'll discover he's trustworthy. He keeps his promises. He's faithful. He pursues us. Those are things you don't learn overnight. Now, God can miraculously bring conviction. Saul of Tarsus and on the road to Damascus is certainly, you know, that that's always at God's disposal. Right. One, one of the phrases that Jerry Trousdale has, has used in miraculous movements is, you know, we, we go prepared to take a long time making strong disciples but we're always open to miraculous accelerations. The reality is we can't presume, though, that God's going to do that every time in the same way, because even in the Gospels, we see such incredible diversity. Uh, Jesus heals a a lot of blind people, a lot of people who can't hear, but he almost never does it in exactly the same way from person to person. Yeah. There, there's incredible diversity there. And so we're, we're open to miraculous accelerations. But we also recognize there's no formula. There's no way we can produce that. That's that's in God's calling. That's his sovereign choice. And so we're going prepared to take a, a reasonable measure of time. And it, it often is six months to two years sort of on this journey to faith. That's terribly slow for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But if you realize that the process isn't just helping someone come to faith, it's also helping them to become a disciple maker on the journey to faith. Well, then that's where multiplication type speed happens. It's not just me reaching people two years down the road. If it takes that two years, there are two of us or maybe there are five of us because this happens in a group in this person of peace's family. And so I'm not just raising up disciple makers one at a time. I'm potentially raising up everyone in a household of peace, in a a family or a friendship group of a person of peace to become a disciple maker. Likelihood is great that not all of them will, but we've often seen multiple disciple makers come out of one family, one household, 
And so we're seeing the, the multiplication of efforts that produces increased speed. God fulfills this prayer for more harvesters by raising up harvesters from within the harvest who are able to help us reach other people or we're able to help them then by coaching them through some of the challenges, some of the difficulties that will go, but it's an ongoing relationship, but it's a multiplication of the laborers. And, and the growth of that is exponential by the time you get to that third and fourth generation, right? Yes. Yes. So as, as a global coach, where do you find your time is being spent or, or where are you um, focusing your efforts is it more on um, raising up individual leaders or catalyzing entire movements? What does that kind of look like within your role? The, the challenge that once once this begins to happen that you're always aware of is there is risk for what's called generational degradation. You know, today with technology, most of our printers aren't making copies you know, they're making, everyone is an original. And, and that's the sign that you've got, you know, the, the ideal kind of replication going on. But in the, in the old days when, you know, they would make a copy of something and all you had was the copy and you go make a copy of that copy and it's less sharp. The, the lines aren't nearly as clear and you give those copies out and somebody else makes a copy of the copy over a, a number of times, there, there is loss. And the way you uh, address that, you work to overcome that, is ongoing training and coaching and mentoring. Every new generation needs to be topped up in their training. And depending on the location, Security concerns, there are multiple ways to build those kinds of just in the nick of time additional training to help people to think strategically, to help people to ensure that they're not dropping questions out of a discovery group that are, are greatly needed. Uh, these, these are some of the kinds of things. So it, it's building this ongoing training and coaching and mentoring network that has to grow with every new generation. How, how do you do that? How do you stay uh, aware of, of what the next training is that a, a new group, that a second generation group or a third generation group might need? to be able to go so that there will continue to be fourth and fifth and sixth generations. Remarkably, once you get to about that fourth generation, usually the process is, is very well set, the, the spiritual DNA. And it's, it's about keeping those training resources prepared and that's that's the area where I spend a lot of my time in, in trying to help people uh, in new places who are just getting started or who are exploring what would it look like to do it on this campus ministry or in this city or in this place. 
uh, new people who are wanting to take home. Once you get uh, disciples making disciples, churches planting churches, uh, movements, you know, starting new movements, th then a lot of time and energy goes into identifying where are the pockets of lostness? Who are the, the least reached people group in a vicinity? And a lot of the reason that in the last few years, the, the number of disciple making movements globally is up over a thousand is a lot of the people who have come to faith through movements are able to reach out to their near neighbor cultural groups, people groups even better than those of us from the West or other parts of the world are, are able to reach. So uh, movements, planting movements, takes it to a whole new level of fruitfulness. Yeah, I, I mean, DMM seems to be an incredible model with some incredible stories and amazing stories coming out of the strategy. Um I've been thoroughly impressed as I've researched the model. Uh, I just finished Miraculous Movements. I've got a couple more books that discuss DMM um, on my docket. But um, I have seen some minor critique in my research um, regarding the balance between word and deed in the model. So we know that Jesus regularly provides for the physical needs <clears throat> as well as the spiritual needs uh, of those he comes in contact with in his ministry. Uh, how does... How does Final Command and DMM seek to find that balance? The, the two places where physical needs are huge and very important and, and quite strategic, the first is access, that serving with purpose element that I mentioned when I went through those five elements What often happens as we begin to pray and fast about reaching a particular people group is we become aware of some of the critical needs that they have. And so how do you respond well to those? Uh, a, a real resistant people group in Asia that a that David Watson, who trained me, shared some information about years ago. Uh, there had been a huge tsunami, and one of the, the most devastating aspects of that was the these walls of salt water ruined wells. And so fresh drinking water wasn't available. And a, a, a large group of Christians working together to see movement started were able to do the emergency relief fundraising to provide a tanker truck that would bring water to those communities and people could fill up and, and get their water. In early phases, the water was provided free of charge because the people had lost everything. They didn't have financial resources. But when this truck was manufactured, uh, the, the manufacturer knew that it was for an, uh, an American organization. And so he put the largest shutoff valve on that truck that was available. And when they delivered it, uh, he was told, you, you've got to take it back and redo it. This isn't what we asked for. And he said, well, this one's bigger. It's going to be more efficient. And he said, well, efficiency in getting water to people is one thing. We're using the water 
as an opportunity for conversations because we want to find spiritually open people. We need a smaller valve so that we'll have more time for conversations. How you serve, how you do compassion ministry is very important. And a lot of us in the West are geared so much toward efficiency. We're going to put the maximum number of people into the situation for the quickest and shortest amount of time. That actually runs counter to relationship building, identifying people through these overt spiritual conversations. And so we do a lot of access ministries. We do compassion ministries on the front. And in our work in Africa, a lot of the areas where we have teams are very dry and wells. I know recently when you talked with uh, Harry Brown, this was a topic that came up. And Final Command uh, was partnering with a uh, a well drilling organization in the from the Nashville area. Since we're in in the basic Middle Tennessee area, we connected with them through a, a pastor who referred us to each other, and was addressing this very thing. A, a group that was doing incredible good in getting water to villages and communities that needed pure, clean drinking water. But that organization was hoping to see churches planted out of the work. But that wasn't their specialty. Their specialty was getting the wells in the community. And so as we started partnering, we began to explore, well, maybe we could train our team to drill wells. And that organization from Nashville, the Living Water Project, connected us with another organization that does well drilling trainings to see if they would be interested. And they said, well, to be honest, we already have a well drilling team in that area and we don't want to create any competition. We don't want, we, we want them to be the ones to do the well drilling that that'll really work out best. And so we were a little bit disappointed, but we went back to the original organization the leaders there that we knew pretty well. And one of them said, we've actually wanted to train people on the ground to identify the geological structures that make us know where the best place to drill a well is. And this organization also required, if you're going to put a well in a community, the community has to identify people to serve on a water community, a water committee, who will be responsible for the upkeep of the pump, who will make sure that a fence stays around it so animals don't get in and break the pump, don't you know create a mud hole around it that would uh, damage the purity of the water. We need people who will work there. So. Instead of training our team to be well drillers, we train them to be the liaison who would work with the community to identify the best place for the well to go in, who would help the community to recruit team members for this committee, who would oversee the well, 
And all of that time, there are multiple reasons to come and go and visit the community and have spiritual conversations as well as these physical conversations about water. Uh, lots of passages about the living water, about Jesus as the water of life. And so our disciple makers are able to provide that liaison role between the community and the well drillers and have numerous overt spiritual conversations in the natural flow of doing compassion well. And in uh, many of those communities, people have come to faith, churches have been planted, strong disciple making is begun because we're meeting not only the physical need, but also this disciple-making strategic need. And in the partnership that Final Command has with the Living Water Project, both of us are able to do what we set out to do far better as partners than we were as separate uh, organizations. So do you guys find it difficult uh, to get organizations like, for example, a living water uh, to come alongside and partner with you in a region that you are working that they may not have a presence in, like like getting them to shift to a new location and and, and region, um, I'm assuming can sometimes be difficult. So how have you dealt with that um, barrier? There is a time period that many of us have to go through to grasp how you know those kinds of partnerships can work well. Uh, the, the beautiful thing is a lot of times the, the way it happens well is, is relationship. The, the individual who introduced us to the Living Water Project had spent the time growing to personally understand disciple-making movement and the, the, the need for those access ministries, those compassion ministries, and knowing that the Living Water Project is doing a, an excellent job with that. And this pairing, this marriage, this partnership uh, could be be beneficial for both of us. And he wanted that because he's a kingdom expanding kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And he saw that introducing us was a great way forward. With, with organizations that haven't partnered in that kind of way, the initial process often can be somewhat slow. It's, it's, it's like a, you know, early dating with people that you just met for the first time. Uh, right. it, it's rare when a blind date, you know, just hits it off perfectly. The, the first time. And, you know, some people in the disciple making movement world, missions world may try to create some of those blind date opportunities. But we found that, you know, it, it usually takes a while for people to wrap their brains around why some of these strategic differences are so significant, why those paradigm shifts, why we, we have to embrace multiplication. Most of us think we are. But a lot of times we've accepted some addition strategies rather than multiplication strategies. 
and somebody just coming up and whacking us upside the head and saying, you're wrong. These are the things you've got to change is is rarely the way that it, it's going to happen. We found the most powerful thing are stories of breakthrough and stories of transformation that people begin to think about, you know, Jesus stories. It seems in his parables, there were times he told them to illustrate a point, but there are also times he told them to sort of hide a point. And it's almost like a time delay bomb where after the fact, the religious leaders are plotting to kill him because they realized he just told that story about them. There's almost this delayed effect where it sneaks in, it's grabbed your thinking before you realize it. And then all of a sudden you recognize, wait a minute, I'm on the wrong end of this story. And then the challenge is, are we going to be open to shifting? Are we going to consider it further? Are we going to ask follow-up questions? Or are we going to become angry and and try to do them in? Now, a lot of the parachurch ministries and organizations that we talk to uh, find themselves generally more heavily weighted on the physical service, uh, relief, compassion end of the ministry spectrum, uh, and and have a hard time working discipleship into their programs or, or just a lack of knowledge within that, but oftentimes a desire to uh, have discipleship within their programs. Um, how would you guys... Or how would you encourage organizations that are looking to apply a disciple-making model to their relief or compassion uh, or service-based work? What would that encouragement look like? The first recommendation would be to devote some time to praying and fasting and seeking the heart of God, especially in identifying one location where they are working already that could be set up sort of as a a, a pilot project. And a key piece of that type of pilot project would be, is there a disciple-making organization nearby who could either implant some of their disciple-makers into that operation or partner with that operation to help you know carry the weight a lot of compassion ministries are excellent at what they're doing on the compassion side but they don't have the same expertise they don't have the same experience they don't have the same training toward disciple-making that they do their compassion ministry. And uh, if they would partner with an organization that has more of that expertise, then the, the possibility of, of multiplication of both groups being able to do a, a better job. One of the challenges for disciple-making movements organizations is do we spend a lot of our time, our expertise in starting compassion ministries, which, you know, may be helpful eventually, but sometimes building it to the level that it needs to be to do that with excellence requires an incredible investment of time and financial resources. Right. And so instead of having 
you know, both giving up where their sweet spot is, having them hold hand to hand in hand and going together may be the better way. But I would recommend that it be done in a, in a smaller scale pilot project type setting where you can work through some of the challenges that come up. Uh, a part of what has to happen for a good partnership is eventually your compassion people need to understand those disciple making processes well enough that they don't in, unintentionally do things that undermine them. Yeah. Like if you're frontline uh, medical person or dental person, you know, finds a person of peace. What you do next, if, if you start reaching them one by one, if you're not careful, can unintentionally create a situation of what's referred to as extractional evangelism. If you reach this man or woman or this teenage boy or, or girl by himself or herself in, in a in a real resistant area, the first place where persecution is most likely to break out is in the family. Because the family feels like we've come in, we've offered them something good, and we've brainwashed them, we've pulled them away from the family, we've broken down their family unity. And so how we go into our ministry is very important. A disciple-making approach would be more to identify, you know, build the relationship where this person would uh, invite family or friends to participate. From the very beginning, the very first week of a Discovery Bible study, one of our questions, it's the next to the last question, is who do you know that you ought to share this story with. Well, earlier in the process, they've heard this story read a couple of times and they've practiced retelling it. We do that so they'll hear it multiple times. They can respond to the questions about what do you learn about God? What do you learn about people? What would obedience to this passage look like in your life? You know, How will you obey it? How will you put it into practice? They've heard it well enough to be able to answer those questions well, but they've also heard it well enough that they can go and share the story with somebody else, that section of scripture with somebody else. And then you ask them the question, who do you know that you ought to share it with? And maybe the first couple of weeks, you're just asking for the name of the person. But then the third week you say, who will you share it with this week? And the name that they mentioned, then the following week, the next week, you would ask them. Last week, you said you were going to share it with your sister, Mary. How did that go? Not everybody will retell it. But some will. And those are the ones who are most likely down the road to become disciple makers because they're already sharing the gospel. We, we joke at times that the people we're really looking for are those who are willing to gossip the gospel. Those who just go anywhere and everywhere and they, they can't hold it in. They, they have good news that they've got to share. 
So with, with these ministries, uh, helping them to see the importance of identifying persons of peace. And before you start a study one-on-one, you would always ask, do you have family? Do you have friends? Who do you know who would also enjoy exploring these things or hearing more of these stories? And you just want to make sure that you don't unintentionally undermine the disciple-making process that can expand, that can grow. Because when the whole family discovers together, uh, the possibility is great that all of them will come to faith. And even in, in families where some do and some don't, the remarkable thing that we've seen is those who don't have greater respect for the decision of their family members who do and are rarely resistant for them. They choose for themselves not to go this direction for other reasons, but they're okay with their family members. And a big part of it is they realize an outsider, a foreigner, somebody else who's come from somewhere else didn't trick them, didn't take advantage of them, didn't apply, you know, pressure, undue pressure. This is something this family's been doing together week after week after week for months. They realize everybody has come to their choice freely. No one has come under coercion. Going back to that partnership model, um, because I'm, I'm all on board with the partnership model. I, I'm subscribed to Rooting for Rivals. I, I think that uh, partnership in the ministry, especially the parachurch ministry space, needs to be a uh, at least a discussion that we're having more often. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities for uh, increased in- kingdom impact through partnership. Um, but oftentimes there are very real variables uh, that are barriers to partnership, ministry to ministry partnership. Um, organization A may be working in location X. Organization B that they want to partner with may be lo- working in location Y. Uh, to add or move locations for either of those two organizations is difficult. There's financial barriers that exist within that. Um, so how would you recommend organizations that want to or desire to partner with each other to focus on what they are good at and allow another organization to come in and help with what they are good at? Um, but m- there may be some of those um, barriers that exist. How, how would you encourage organizations um, that want that partnership but have those barriers? What would that kind of look like? Um, what are some ideas that you have around that? One of the things that I've seen is for uh, the compassion ministry to express a, a willingness to have a you know high quality trainer from the disciple making organization come and be embedded with their teams mm-hmm. to begin to do training to do ongoing coaching of how can we do these things well how can we position ourselves better uh, what do we need and depending on where they're located a lot of times uh, disciple making organizations are so catalytic in their thinking 
there is a willingness to provide that kind of training, coaching resource embedded within uh, an organization. If, if there's an openness to exploring, what would that look like? Yeah. And that's that's the thing that we've seen that often works well, and it creates the opportunity for uh, people. Now, one of the challenges that that can arise, a lot of compassion ministries partner incredibly heavily with places where churches are already on the ground. And so there's uh, a real focus on, uh, like, there's an organization that I know of uh, in Tanzania. They do wells, and they also do training in water sanitation and hygiene wash. Uh, real, real good, both both prongs. Really good compassion ministries and. Lives are being saved from, you know, waterborne illness and, and other things. And a lot of really solid compassion ministry being done there. Um, but this one organization was concerned that, you know, their, their primary connection were with existing churches in villages that had churches. Uh, they're, they're happy to do wells there, but their, restructure their shift that's slightly different is every village with a church that gets a well has to identify the nearest village to them that has no church and that also needs a well and as a part of them getting a well they have to be willing to help go and make sure that the well is dug in this nearby village and that there's a a Christian witness there through their lives. And those would be the people who would be trained well to begin to implement the finding the person of peace and starting a discovery study, because a lot of times they're ordinary people. They might not view themselves, you know, as the, the prime disciple making movement person. But they would be open to training so that when they're going to the village that has no church, they, they can't depend on traditional come and, you know, come and worship with us kinds of strategies, the attractional kinds of strategies. They're going. The, the goal is to not only get water there, but to have people bringing other people to faith. And so people in that church that might not have been so open to being trained to be disciple makers for their own community because their strategy is bringing people to church. They're going somewhere where there is no church. And you begin this and there the uh, water and sanitation, the wash program and the well drilling program, they're able to report back to their donor base that they've made this change, this strategic shift, because they not only want to strengthen communities that already have churches, they want to see them reaching communities that don't have churches at all, who also need wells. 
So how we structure what we're doing is very important to create openings for multiplication. Yeah, that that's so good. Thank you for that. Um, well, John, I think that this is about all the time that we have. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. Can I pray for your ministry? Absolutely. Father, I just lift up John uh, and final command. Father, I just lift up uh, John and final command. I pray that you would um, lead and guide him and and the organization uh, as he helps lead this organization. I pray that you would provide guidance and direction and clarity. Jesus, I pray that you would continue to do an amazing work uh, for your glory through this organization and through John and his team. Um, I pray that uh, movements would continue to be catalyzed, that um, your name would be uh, proclaimed and disciples would be made and uh, that amazing things would continue to come out of Final Command um, and John and his team and, and their national partners. And uh, I just lift up this organization. Thank you for the willingness to um, come alongside you and your work that you're already doing. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for uh, all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. John, how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about uh, Final Command? Reach out through our website, finalcommand.com. Awesome. Well, we will put that in the show notes. Thank you again so much for being on the show, John. We really appreciate it. Have a good day. My honor. Thanks for having me, Zachary. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors, or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, if you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org. See you next time.